Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, with Propaganda Watch for this week. And uh, <laughs> don't let it be said that I'm up on a high horse pretending that I myself am immune to the propaganda constructs that are out there. We are all prey to them from a very tender young age. <laughs> and uh, I've managed to dig up off of my hard drive some of my old poli-sci papers from back when I was at the University of Calgary. <laughs> and I had almost forgotten about this class. I took a poli-sci 283. I don't even know exactly what that was. I guess it was something to do with international relations with a Dr. Eunice. I don't even remember his full name at this point. I guess I could look it up, but I'm not that motivated. <laughs> the only thing that I really remember about that class is uh, Dr. Eunice telling us a story once about when he was talking to Henry Kissinger about something or other. And I remember at the time I was thinking, ooh, Henry Kissinger, wow, this guy, this guy is important. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a bit embarrassing. Um these papers that I, I dug up and printed off here are embarrassing on a number of levels. First of all, as a self-confessed logophile like myself, <laughs> this is this is pretty bad writing. I am surprised, actually. I, I was going through my various papers, uh, philosophy papers and English papers and things, and by the second, third year of university, I started to hit my stride and it's at least readable, but this, which is more from my first, second year, is just cringe-inducing. <laughs> Some really horrible sentences and constructions in here. I mean, even disregarding what I'm actually writing about, just... Uh... <laughs> Just some of the sentences are terrible. What was the worst one I found? Um. <laughs> this sentence is just... Historically, the language of science has proven to be one of the only truly universal languages in the world today. <laughs> really, James? Historically today? Really? <laughs> This is bad. This is bad. You don't understand how how this is is this is the most embarrassing thing I could do is to dig up my old writing and share it with you. But I will do so in the interest of showing not not telling but showing how propaganda affects the minds of the young. And uh let's look at a couple of the papers that I wrote from that class. Now, over two decades ago, 21 years ago, April 6, 1998, I wrote this little gem, The United Nations and Developing Aid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which starts by saying, In recent years, developing aid has become a multifaceted topic, no longer simply involving monetary handouts to impoverished countries. As usual, the United Nations is at the forefront of the movement to provide diverse forms of aid to developing countries, fulfilling the promise made in the United Nations Charter to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom and for those ends to employ international machinery for the promotion of the economic and social advantage of all uh, sorry, advancement of all peoples. In their attempts to deliver efficient and effective aid, the United Nations has set up the United Nations Development Program, UNDP, an organization which directs the United Nations' attempt to promote sustainable human development throughout the world. This program works to make effective changes in developing countries to promote the betterment of all impoverished peoples. <laughs> Woo! 
quite the thesis statement there, James. Um, yeah, this sounds like a press release for the United Nations, doesn't it? And yeah, the paper pretty much reads that way. It's just full of just gunk about and fluff about how great the United Nations Development Program is. Um, and it ends up on this note. What then does the future hold for the UNDP? Interestingly, a key issue affecting the organization's future is that of program funding. Originally, all the funding for UNDP-related activities came from voluntary contributions from nearly every country in the world. However, in 1983, the Regional Bureau for Latin America and the Caribbean was informed by the indicative, indicative planning figure that core funding for programs was being reduced. The result is that non-core funding, such as joint efforts with government or industry, now accounts for more money than core funds in the region. The switch to non-core funds is now being encouraged throughout all of the UNDP's main areas of operation as it decreases the organization's dependence upon unreliable contributions. The concern has been raised, however, that the association with bodies that do not subscribe to all of the United Nations goals and priorities will dilute the effectiveness of UNDP programs. When governments and industries help to fund the UNDP's activities, they must have a say in what those activities are. This, obviously, can lead to conflicts of interest, whereby the co-funding agent promotes its own development goals at the expense of broader assistance to all parts of society. Whether these concerns have genuine merit is yet to be seen, and will be studied more more carefully in future human development reports issued by the UNDP. <laughs> An interesting bit of hand-waving at the end there. Well, here's this issue about... Well, maybe there's people who are funding these programs that don't necessarily have the interests of all of society at heart. <laughs> really? <clears throat> yeah. And then uh, the entire paper ends with, In conclusion, the United Nations is at the cutting edge of assistance to developing countries. The UN has realized that simple monetary handouts are not an effective way to help encourage growth in the third world. Accordingly, many different issues are now being addressed by various UN agencies, including the UNDP, to raise the standards of living in impoverished countries. Much progress has been made in these matters, but much remains left to do. And as long as there is work to be done in developing aid, one can be assured that the United Nations will be helping to provide it. Wow. And then my works cited list <laughs> is literally every single work cited comes from the UNDP homepage. <laughs> <laughs> Great sourcing there, James. Every single thing cited. I mean, this is just the UNDP press release. I, I don't remember what the actual specific assignment was for this paper, what I was what what we were supposed to be doing, but literally this is just regurgitating the UNDP site <laughs> and saying how don't worry about all these problems, whatever they are, the UN will sort it out. In my defense, Again, I think this is just a reflection of the propaganda constructs I was living in as a young child growing up in Canada, subjected to such things as the Heritage Minute, talking about heritage, uh, the Canada's proud heritage and UN peacekeeping and other such things, which is why I think in early on in the podcast, I did come back to this point several times that the United Nations is not your friend. The United Nations is not there to help you. The United Nations is not all warm and fuzzy because I had grown up so much with that propaganda ringing in my ears. The United Nations is wonderful, and Canada's been a core part of peacekeeping and other selfless acts on the international stage, blah blah blah. That propaganda nonsense really got, I think, into my head, which is why when I started to learn, hey, maybe that's not true, <laughs> that really uh, was something I hammered home. But th perhaps the uh, more interesting paper for our purposes is this one, 
Global Forces and the Coming Millennium, April 20th, 1998. So just a couple weeks after that UNDP press release I wrote. <clears throat> and this, uh, this one starts, On the brink of the new millennium, world politics seems to be resting on a precipice, poised between the traditional nation-state system and increasing, an increasing trend toward globalization in, in many international matters. The rise of this trend towards globalization can be traced to several key transnational movements. How these forces are dealt with in future world politics might just determine the future of our nation-state system forever. Well, there you go. Pretty apropos to the subjects that I'm still here talking about 21 years later. So let's see what I had to say at the time. This is, uh, this is where I came in with that historically today sentence. <laughs> we live in a society since the dawn of man. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to think I was always a great writer, but, um, well, we all have to start somewhere, right? Well, here's actually some interesting bits from this. I, I start by talking about science and technology and how they're going to be important for developing and international relations and blah, blah, blah. The international language of science has historically today been <laughs> very important. Um, <clears throat> But it, I have a section on eco-politics, where I note the increasing popularity of environmental consciousness in international politics has created such international organizations as Greenpeace and the World Wildlife Fund. And if you want to know more about the World Wildlife Fund and where it really comes from, how about why big oil conquered the world? Such occurrences as thick smog, which have become a common occurrence in some major urban centers, show the need for environmentally friendly thinking. Environmentalist thinking has become such a large concern to industrialized countries that the United Nations has organized Earth summits to deal with some of the larger issues. I would also recommend Why Big Oil Conquered the World if you're, more in if you're interested in the Earth Summit and what it was really about. While many environmentalists see this as progress, developing countries tend to argue that the conferences concentrate on sustainable environmental development, which puts them at an unfair disadvantage to the developed world. They argue that while the developed world was allowed to industrialize free of environmental restraints, the industrial countries are now frowning on the third world for doing the same thing. Such complaints are justified and must be addressed. I believe it is important for the burden of helping the it is important for the burden of helping the developing countries attain environmentally friendly development fall on the industrialized world that is a nonsensical sentence. Uh, maybe I'm trying to say I believe it is important for the burden of helping the developing countries to attain environmentally friendly development. <laughs> I don't know. I'll let you parse that sentence. I think I understand what I'm saying, but <laughs> it's not even really English. It is unfair to put already struggling countries at a further disadvantage by asking them to shoulder the economic burden of cleaning up their industries. Making such ultimatums only leads to mistrust and discord on the global political scene. Something that has been a common and repeated uh, point of contention in the annual uh, Conference of the Parties meetings at the UN talking about the climate uh, issue and who's responsible for it and who's going to get money for it. It's, it's all squabbling over the money and the handouts, and, and this has continued to be, for the last 21 years now, an important key issue. And one that I've addressed before in my uh, reporting on ClimateGate, for ex example, back in 2009 at the Conference of the Parties, where one of the major concerns raised by the developing world is, hey, how come you guys are trying to put the limits on it just as we are industrializing? Um, 
But then I go on to say the importance of ecopolitics as a force in the 21st century, however, may not be very large. Already, support for environmentalism seems to be waning as citizens become more informed on what the real global environmental situation is. The dreaded greenhouse effect, for example, which has dominated media attention for years, does not seem to be quite so dire as doomsayers originally predicted if it is even having, uh, having an effect at all. Recent studies of solar flare cycles may discredit the theory forever, and if so, the impact on environmentalism as a future political force would be profound. Furthermore, the public is becoming more aware of how organizations such as Greenpeace use scare tactics and media coverage to mainstream their own agendas in international politics. The realization that such organizations may distort the truth in order to win widespread support for their environmental program recommendations may also hamper the furtherment of eco-politics. All right, well, you know, hey, point there, James. I, I Even at that time, even 21 years ago, it was becoming obvious that there might be a political agenda that's at work here, more so than um, unbiased and sci objective scientific reporting on the facts as they stand. And even talking about solar flare cycles and other things as being drivers of climate. So that's interesting because I didn't really seriously start questioning the consensus on climate change until 2006. But even back in 98, I guess I, I still had my, uh, my misgivings, which was interesting. It was interesting to see that. Um, and then moving on in a section on... Uh, international agencies and transnational affiliations. Organizations like the United Nations, on the other hand, attempt to transcend ideological and cultural differences as well as national boundaries to bring order to international relations. The United Nations has been the major player on the international scene for over 50 years now, but its inefficiencies are now beginning to show through. It suffers from the same type of problem which crippled its predecessor, the League of Nations, namely an inability to enforce decisions. With no standing army, there is no way to ensure the enforcement of military, deci military decisions. As peacekeepers, the UN plays mainly a figurehead role and is largely ineffective should large-scale hostilities resume. It has set up a court of international law, but settling disputes there is completely optional and results are not binding. What needs to be done to promote world peace and order in international relations is to give the UN more power in enforcing its own decisions. Uh, giving the, the UN this kind of control, though, means na nations relinquishing some of their own autonomy. Such submission has not reached widespread appeal with the citizens of the world, however. Militias apostrophe, unnecessary apostrophe, which have been formed in the southern United States, for example, see the United Nations as little more than an attempt to form a one-world government and thus destroy the U.S.'s world supremacy. Similar sentiments, albeit to lesser extents, pervade much popular thought. Until such selfish thinking can be adjusted, there will never be the realization of true world peace and cooperation. <laughs> Until we can eliminate anyone who disagrees with us, there will not be peace. <laughs> There's a lot in here that uh, clearly is not coming from 19-year-old me. It's clearly things that I was steeped in from a very young age. And it's interesting to see the way this spills out on the page here. Uh, I, I will direct people to my podcast episode on international law for more about that concept of international law and how it is uh, fo furthered, fostered, and promoted by entities like the United Nations and was uh, 
fostered and promoted in the new world order of Wilsonian diplomacy in the League of Nations. I'll also direct people to my uh, film literature New World Order episode on Pink Cadillac, (laughs) which... (laughs) Don't watch the movie, but listen to the episode. It's uh, about the militia movement and how it was, uh, how it was uh, set up to take the fall for, for OKC, essentially, um, and and the FBI operation that was uh, going on behind that, the PatCon and all of that. That's uh, an incredibly interesting thing, and especially resonant for me because as I was even writing about in here, militias in the southern United States. I thought it was the Michigan militia that was the one that was the big boogeyman, but anyway, um, it, it was still, I guess, resonated enough for me to be writing about it in my one of my term papers here, twenty one years ago, um, and. There you go. So propaganda sinks deep and it regurgitates itself, uh, perhaps when you least expect it. Uh, Then I write about the future of world politics, talking about the global polyarchy and blah, blah, blah. Uh, This leads to the rather obvious statement that money will be a large concern of countries in the 21st century you think. However, as the European Union begins to organize and perhaps dominate the global economy, they will be setting the trend for other countries to organize large, highly profitable free trade common currency zones. One thing is sure, and that is if the United States begins to lose its position as the economic superpower to beat, it will be desperate to adopt new measures to restore its prominence. As the environmental movement starts to lose support for the aforementioned reasons, It will leave behind one important legacy. The idea of ecology seems to be inextricably linked with the idea that all mankind is truly one. And since the whole global environment is so related, and we're all in the same boat, so to speak, perhaps petty differences such as skin color should be forgotten. Only when man begins to recognize he is not fundamentally different from his enemy... uh, will the world achieve peace. Whenever the future begins, one can be assured... Whatever the future brings, one can be assured it will be an interesting time politically. As transnational forces begin to rise to prominence, it's anyone's guess as to how traditional forms of governance will adapt. I will note, even the use of the word governance is a reflection of propaganda poisoning that I've been subjected to, because of course that is the 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 word that the globalists love to use it's not go- it's not global government oh what are you you're part of one of those one of those militias who's afraid of the united nations no 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 we're talking about governance it's totally different guys anyway well at the very least i cited four completely different sources as my work cited in this paper none of which are the undp website so <laughs> Some slight progress, huh? Anyway, uh, this is me bearing my uh, my most innermost vulgarities to you. <laughs> In every sense, the terrible writing and the ridiculous regurgitation of nonsense propaganda. But again, I think it is important to just show and to demonstrate that, of course, I don't hold myself up on a high horse in this. We're all swimming around in this propaganda stew, and it sinks in there, and then it comes up on command when when it's needed to in whatever academic or other context uh, in which this stuff is brought out. So I just wanted to share that with you and, uh, well, atone for my sins of this putrid nonsense that I was spewing out a couple of decades ago with some links to some of the Corbett Report work that I've done in the intervening uh, decades that 
hopefully um, mitigates the <laughs> propaganda that I was spewing back then. And then now that I have an audience, <laughs> now I can actually spread truth rather than spreading propaganda to a probably very disinterested professor who may have half-heartedly marked these papers. I don't even know what I got on them. I don't remember. I don't care. <laughs> but anyway, that's that. And <laughs> that's going to do it for another edition of Propaganda Watch. If you have any embarrassing papers from your undergrad uh, d d time, please share them with the audience. <laughs> I'm sure we'd all love to hear about them, too. In the meantime and in between time, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again very soon.